0: This is InX, a show about inclusive design. I'm your host, Matt May. In this episode...
1: It's such hubris to think that we can ever know exactly what somebody else is feeling and how they're going to react. And anything that we do to persuade ourselves, that's the case, I think is really dangerous. We need to come at this with humility and with a recognition that the only person that has expertise about their own experience is the person that's experiencing it.
0: A conversation with Yuta Treveranus. Welcome to NX. I'd like to start by introducing myself and what this is all about. A little over two years ago, I applied to the master's program in inclusive design at OCAD University. The reason I made this decision to go back to school is my first guest, my mentor of two decades and my master's advisor, Yuta Trevoranis. Without her guidance and support, I would never have made my way to OCAD, where I've had the chance to approach inclusive design from the side of academia to complement my experience working in accessibility and inclusive design in the technology field. And full disclosure. In 2017, I started the inclusive design practice at Adobe, where I've been working for the last 15 years. But this podcast is not sponsored, endorsed, reviewed, or edited by Adobe, and I do my best not to talk about my work life during these interviews. This podcast is my major research project in partial completion of the Master of Design in Inclusive Design at OCAD University. I've chosen a podcast as my format for a series of interviews with people I respect in and around the field of inclusion. I named this series NX because it's made up of interviews with experts about inclusion and exclusion. I've worked to make these interviews as inclusive as possible for my interviewees and for you, the audience. If you prefer to read your podcast rather than listen to them, full transcripts are available at inex.show. That's I-N-E-X dot show. I've worked with my interviewees to make the interviews available under the Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license, so you're free to share this podcast in any way you like. Please credit InEx and the guest if you do. Now, let me introduce you to Yuda. It is my great pleasure to get to sit down with my friend and my mentor of 20 years, Yuta Trevoranis. Yuta is the director of the Inclusive Design Research Center and professor in the Faculty of Design at OCAD University. Yuta established the IDRC in 1993 as the nexus of a global growing community that proactively works to ensure that our digitally transformed and globally connected society is designed inclusively. Dr. Trevoranis was also founded. An innovative graduate program in inclusive design at OCAD University, where I am a student and Yuta is my advisor. <laughs> Yuta is credited with developing an inclusive design methodology that has been adopted by large enterprise companies as well as public sector organizations internationally. And thank you, Yuta, for coming and joining me for this
1: interview. Oh, it's a pleasure.
0: <laughs> First, I want to start with a land acknowledgement. OCAD University acknowledges the ancestral and traditional territories of the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Haudenosaunee, the Anishinaabe, and the Huron-Wendat. And I am presently on the ancestral and traditional territories of the Duwamish and Coast Salish peoples, who are the original owners and custodians of the land on which we stand and create. So um, apart from the the bio-introduction, I want to get a little bit more into sort of how this uh, came to you, how your career unfolded, if you will.
1: How did I get into this? And I've told a number of different introductions to that, and I, I keep um, reflecting on when did this all start? And every time I tell it, I go further back. But I, I have the same
0: problem, actually. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>
1: because there's uh, so many different original commitments to ideas that are somewhat counter to what is happening at the moment. Periods where I think, oh, my goodness, this isn't right. And we have to do something about it. Or um, is this really how we want to proceed? And isn't there a better way? And then also, oh, my, look at the opportunity or the possibility that this brings about. So I, I think I've been always enthralled with the opportunity about that difference brings and diversity and variety and flux and change. I have a farmer background. My father was a horticulturalist. I have within my family someone that first coined the term botany. and so our entire family has always thought about just how wonderful diversity is and what a differentiation and the serendipity and dynamic resilience within diversity. But at what point did this become part of my career and a a very different part of my career than my dad or my great grandparents, etc. Was, I guess, when I first graduated from my undergrad and I was... Uh, working with or had the opportunity to work with 12 people who had various constraints and uh, disabilities that would make it difficult to participate in post-secondary education. And I was told to figure out how these 12 students could participate in post-secondary education. And by coincidence, it happened to be also the emergence of personal computers. So this was late 70s, early 80s. And there had been these massive things, but all of a sudden, computers were things that could be personal, that could be about you, that could be devices that you would use yourself. And so I saw them as an amazing translation device. What look at how we could use these things to take something that's visual, turn it into auditory, take an action that you can control and turn it into a whole range of things that you need to control something, take something that um, is in audio and turn it into visual, etc. And so I started to play with these personal computers And it was a very sort of skunkworks time because you could basically just unplug the motherboard, the display, you could unplug the keyboard and you could mess with it. And we did things that even to this day, I don't think have been replicated. And in that is the story of how this excitement and opportunity became also an understanding of the risk and how things go the wrong way and don't turn out the way that you want it. So that's been the story since that time is just, wow, look at these Amazing possibilities and opportunities that this stuff brings, and then also, oh my, look at the risks, and oh dear, look at how it's completely gone off course, and we haven't taken it where we want to take it, or we think it should be taken.
0: We're going to get into where it's going <laughs> later on. I think that's going to be fascinating, but I want to talk about the formation of the the IDRC, and I think it was the ATRC, what it started in the University of Toronto, and I think that connects with what you're talking about with the the capabilities of the technology evolving.
1: Yeah. So I was recruited to the University of Toronto and what I was asked to do, or the job that I took was supposed to create a accessible computer lab. And U of T had dozens of computer labs. And so they wanted one accessible one, which... This was in 1993. And I thought, this is all wrong. (laughs) Um, So I took the job. But then I went to the VP of academic computing or computing at the time and said, No, this is not what I want to do. I want to create a research lab that would ensure that all labs are going to be accessible. I don't want the students within U of T to have to come to one place just because uh, they require an alternative access system. But the right at the beginning, I wanted to call it the inclusive design research center, but because the university had already come up with the name, the Adaptive Technology Resource Center, because it was intended to be a resource center, not a research center. We had to stick with that name, but we right from the beginning were calling it Inclusive Design, but under the name of the center, the ATRC.
0: And so this is actually where our paths cross, because at the time you're working at U of T, I had just gotten a job at the World Wide Web Consortium and the Web Accessibility Initiative as a specialist there. And I was the staff contact for your working group. So we were working on the authoring tool accessibility guidelines and you had already done the 1.0 version. And so anyway, I come to, to Toronto for my first trip as I don't even remember how young I was. It was in my 20s. And we just start talking about the task at hand. And then you one day took me over to Ryerson University and showed me a, a demo of Pebbles, I think it was. It was a robot that was for tele-learning, or distance learning. So if you had a student that couldn't physically attend class, they could have an avatar presence, like a rolling robot with a picture of their face. And it just, it stuns me because here we are 20 years later and it actually is happening. Like that There is this idea of remote presence, not just Zoom meetings, but of there being a, a physical presence for people in the room. And so what that taught me is that these things actually do happen, but they do take time. What else do you think that you've seen over the, the last 20 years in just terms of the evolution of inclusive design and maybe going from it being an engineering-driven thing to a design-driven thing?
1: Yeah, and I've always been somewhat troubled by the thought of applying engineering here because engineering is so much about complicated systems. And this idea of building blocks, which you stack one on top of the other, It's it's a very linear thinking process. I've been much more enamored of an organic process where you can't predict the whole thing. You can't make it happen and build it. You are basically growing it to some extent but the other thing to your point about things happening taking time to happen i've seen things go in waves not only did we have that early exploration in telepresence and the technology we were working with this was pre-internet video conferencing right before internet audio, we were dealing with these crazy, difficult, clunky networks that took so much more fiddling and working with and were not ubiquitous. So the explorations, it wasn't, the field wasn't ready yet at the time, but certainly the ideas stuck. And we had, I think, in that pre time when the reality isn't yet there. You can imagine more, you're not as constrained by the reality, it's a fresh field. So we thought about a whole range of things that uh, although the the field has advanced so tremendously and so many more things are possible, we played with things like actually navigating your, your avatar or your physical robot through the environment, raising your hand and physically within the representative of your presence within the classroom actually having an embodiment of yourself in in the remote space and how you would project your identity and your character upon that embodiment. We also were really cognizant of the diversity of representations that you would want so that little robot. Uh, For the kids, it was this yellow blob, this cute yellow blob, the same height as the kids. For the high school students, it was a hanger that you could hang your clothes on and, and that you could move your face. We were really concerned about eye contact. How do you create that sense of eye contact? And that still hasn't really been addressed. But we're not concerned with that anymore for some reason. But I still think it's a really critical piece of actually feeling like you're next to somebody and you're actually talking to somebody. So that was telepresence. But similar, we played with early uh versions of AR, VR. And I wrote a very naive, very sort of optimistic article for MIT telepresence way back then, where I imagined all sorts of things in AR and VR. And then we had this project called Adding Feeling, Touch and Equal Access to Distance Education, where we created a haptic experience, a haptic audio speech experience that really hasn't been replicated either. We took a grade for geography text. And we added haptic artifacts, all sorts of haptic effects, real world sounds, three dimensional real world sounds, and then speech audio to provide the information that you would get in a Great for text if you could see it. And we had things like latitude and longitude lines were elastics, felt like elastics. Cities had a particular artifact that you could feel. And as you got closer to them, the sound, the ambient sound of a city would increase when you got to it. There would be a gravity well around these artifacts. When you got to it, you could hit a key and find out the population and a whole bunch of other things. You could feel the direction of the river by the waves. (laughs) We played with all sorts of possibilities. And it's funny to think that haptics is actually one of the last things now that we're at a place where AR, VR, XR are... So prevalent and so much more possible that it's not something that's being explored.
0: Or if it is is really the same territory dredged back up again. Yeah, and probably yeah. the classic example of that is the sign language gloves. Right. right. And the evolution of that thing where the the there, you know, it used to be, I think the first example that I saw was an old Nintendo power glove, like something built in 1985. And there was this idea of that doing this let you do finger spelling, it's always fresh territory for somebody that discovers this, that they're con- convinced that they're the first people that have ever done it. Right. And then comes the buzzfeed or the now this story about it. And everybody that's been working in this space for all of this time, including especially deaf activists, right. deaf designers that have been in this space, are like, this has been done this doesn't meet our needs at all. It's, it's just an annoyance and it draws so much attention for this. And then it becomes called inclusive design, right?
1: Uh, or the exoskeleton. And this is going to that walking. Exactly. Is the, some sort of semblance of walking is really what you want rather than getting from place to place. Or the other one that is every PhD in engineering... I, I don't know how many hours the EEG the we're going to read your brain waves, and that's how we'll if you can't communicate, that's how you're going to communicate. Yeah.
0: We talked about this demo that I saw at a CSUN many years ago, the CSUN conference, a big uh, accessibility industry conference where there was a demo where you put pads on your forehead and then tried to make a bulb. You know, bounce up, and they made a game about that called Mind Flex. Uh, it's the same idea, but the yeah. like you keep coming back to these ideas of if we could only do this, then you know, right. yeah. if we could make exoskeletons or wheelchairs that can climb stairs or whatever, that yeah. and, suddenly and that, the world would open up.
1: Yeah, and the myth behind that, the craziness behind that, is that if we could fix the person, then this whole thing. And which is why I insist that inclusive design is not about fixing the person. It's about fixing the environment. And in fact, that diversity that we find amongst people is actually really valuable and something that we shouldn't get rid of because they're going down that path. We end up in monocultures. We end up with the designer baby. We end up with all the scary things that is going to be our demise as a society as a human species.
0: Yeah. And it there are so many threads to tug at here. So I actually want to take a break here and then we can get back into to, to this in the next segment because there are so many ideas with this, this terminology that I want to unpack a little bit so that people really understand what it is that the IDRC that OKDU talks about when they're talking about inclusive design. So take a short break uh, okay. and we'll come back with you to turn around this
1: great.
0: InX is a major research project by me, Matt May, as part of the Master of Design degree program at OCAD University in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Episodes and transcripts of this podcast can be found at inX.show. That's I-N-E-X x.show. show. Follow InX on Twitter at I-N-E-X podcast. And we're back uh, with you to Trevor Onus. And I-, I wanted to get into sort of the the Defining concepts, if not terms, behind inclusive design and the capital I, you know, the capital letter, inclusive design. And, and, and I think now I'm going to just use it to call as a term of art. Inclusive design has this as this definition. And. First, I want to talk about universal design. So there's this this movement that came out of architecture. Ron Mace, who was a professor at uh, North Carolina State, had this concept with seven principles of, of universal design that was applied in the field of architecture and was adapted, has evolved out of that. I wrote a book with Wendy Chisholm called Universal Design for Web Applications that tried to associate the, the two concepts. And I've distanced myself a little bit from universal design, but I want you to... I want you to talk about your perceptions about this and we can see where these two concepts differ or how they contrast against one another.
1: Sure. So I'm very much in support of the concepts of universal design. It came out of architecture and it came out of industrial design. And so I, when digital systems and networks and, um, less static structures came about, I thought, oh, here's an opportunity to go further. Because the thing that troubled me about universal design was this need for a one-size-fits-all approach. Within architecture, within industrial design, there are constraints that make it very difficult to address the real diversity and difference that we have and the variability within the person as well. So I thought, oh, with digital systems, with networks, with the resource pooling that we have, here's an opportunity to actually create one size fits one, not to deny our diversity, not to create compromises for people that are not addressed or who can't be addressed with a one-size-fits-all design. The other thing that always worried me was that universal design if we have to find a system or if we have to land upon a single design then who's going to make the compromises it's the people that are in the minority that are the outliers because there's so many ra- reasons why someone will say does this deserve the, co- the co- in cost investment does this deserve the time that we take if you do it this way then what about all these other people who needed a different way that is why I, I was so optimistic about digital systems,
0: and still one of the problems that that evolved with me about it, it include about universal design as a term. What ended up happening was that there was this race to the singularity, that there was this one thing that everybody is going to use, and one of the things that we talk about in the program was the, the bell curve of, here's this distribution, standard distribution of human capability, if you will, and that we're only really focused on this level and up, and so therefore, if you need to adapt, then you, like, this is something that is bestowed upon you. Be grateful that this is something that was made for you, rather than there being a dialogue between somebody who's being left out and what they consider, quote unquote, the core user. And that inclusive design kind of flips that around, right? It requires the participation and the consent of the people that that are most marginalized. It centers the, the needs of the people instead of just assuming that everyone is by default accommodated and anybody else is, quote unquote, extra work.
1: Yeah. And you talk about the bell curve, but the bell curve is such a flattening of requirements and its primary right. uses within education and what it seems to promote is this notion as well that. Everything is on the same scale. So in my use of data, I've been more looking at it in three dimensions as the the normal distribution and what I call the human starburst, because there are so many facets in which we differ and so many facets that need to be considered when we consider a design. But you're right, there are these completely unconscious, completely entrenched ways of thinking about the spectrum of people and and how we make decisions and how we make choices, and who needs to be considered, and the hierarchy of that consideration. I've been talking recently about this idea of upending the hierarchy of compromise you were just talking about, the notion to say, be happy with um, what you get, that in fact, the people that should be compromising are the people that currently are excluded as opposed to the people that are currently well served by the, the current designs. And I also talk about the hierarchy of justification, that individuals that are currently excluded are have such a burden of justifying why they need to be included. The individuals that are currently included or who are well served by the designs can rely on saying things like, that's just the way we do things. And this is our standard procedure. This is the way things are done. All of those tropes that don't allow thoughtfulness and a realization that uh, we are in fact creating systems that are not good for anybody. But that, that's right. another part of this. Who should we be considering if we want to create systems that benefit everybody?
0: Okay. Uh, you said systems and now I want to dig into to that piece of this because one thing that I've that I found among the, the people that that, that I think really uh, inclusive design has resonated with is this idea of systems and system theory that especially if you came up as an advocate and you've seen how difficult it is to make even the smallest amount of progress that you do one thing and you get to, to, to this destination. And I've talked about this as sandcastles. You do this thing, you turn around, it gets washed away. And To think about how this exclusive mindset establishes itself in a system, not just in the creation of a company or something like that, but the culture from which the people come from that create the company. All of those things are factors in the design of a a product. And what do you think about the, the... how inclusive design sort of juxtaposes with with systems thinking.
1: Inclusive design is intervention in a complex adaptive system. It's all about culture change. It isn't about solutions or fixes. Most of what we work on or we consider the challenges we're trying to address cannot be fixed, they can't be solved. People change, the environment changes. If you create something that is supposedly an inclusive design or that you see as an inclusive design and you've changed the culture sufficiently that it can be adapted by whoever's the intended beneficiary if you don't think about what it's nested in then there will be a friction point at whatever point you haven't actually considered the relationship with people around you. A simple way I try to talk about it is, say you create a wonderful, inclusive curriculum for a student. It's not going to work unless the teacher is familiar with it, supports it, understands why. The teacher is going to be in difficulty if the principal or the school as a whole doesn't understand. The principal and the school is going to be in trouble if the school board, et cetera, and then the, the Department of Ed. Those are all nested. The parents have an influence. The funders, the commercial entities that provide the products, people, all of those need to be taken into consideration before that child that requires something that is more inclusive than what is generally offered can actually realize the benefits. And before the benefit of what they're using can be seen by the rest of the class and the rest of the system that they're nested in. So that's the negative part of it. The positive part about it is that initial inclusive design that small intervention and culture change can create this ripple effect where it doesn't only benefit the student that was the originator of the challenge, but it can ripple throughout an entire school system and then perhaps even an entire country and around the world. So, yes, we're intervening in complex adaptive systems. And therein is the huge challenge and difficulty, but therein is also the opportunity and the amazing benefit that we can derive from inclusive design.
0: So this is kind of where I contrast that idea of inclusive design as the term of art that we're talking about and inclusive design, meaning anything that someone can conceive of that is part inclusion and part design. Mm. A lot of these are what get the most attention because it's usually people that That are thinking about these home run swings if you will the the one big thing that's going to solve everything that everything will now go through this one solution i think one of the the hallmarks of that is what i call the one and done right Right, you that you have this one project and we're going to do this and i see this in so many different products we're going to do an accessibility sprint. We're going to talk about this one specific issue, and then we're going to solve it, and it's going to be done. And it's hard to say, this is a marathon. You know, like, This is something that you need to keep doing. But when all the attention is going to these big moonshot things that you look six months later at the thing that was on BuzzFeed or now this or something like that. And it turns out it was just somebody's master's project. It was somebody's Ph.D. And now they just work at some big company doing something completely unrelated. You have so much potential in this system to to do dramatic change. But obviously, those superficial kinds of works are going to be maximized for marketing value, but aren't going to do anything meaningful in the greater context.
1: Yeah, and I, I so agree with that. We've dropped solution and fix from our language because these are not fixable problems. Frequently, inclusive design is seen as just a version of design thinking because it's designed for good, and there are a whole bunch of virtuous design sprints r- related to design thinking. But design thinking, is still in the thralls of that competitive majority rules winning best solution process. So the design squiggle, it iterates towards this one winning design based upon a whole set of iterations of competitive processes where people uh, supposedly reach consensus. And I'm not uh, attempting to denigrate design thinking, but inclusive design is not about that. It's about creating a system that can address as a, a continuously expand diversity of requirements that are out there. So creating a system that is adaptive and and also within that is embedded this recognition that we always need to ask who is missing, that people's needs change, that what we need is a system that can react, can be dynamically resilient to the things that reveal themselves, the way that people change, the people we realize have not been part of or have not been included so just as there is no fix and there's no solution there is also not a final sort of certified accessible for all inclusive design the the one thing that really bugs me about those moonshots that are supposedly Uh, inclusive designs is that there's also this conception that uh, you can scale by formulaic replication. You've created this wonderful life transforming solution to all of our accessibility challenges or whatever. And now we scale it. And scaling means that you follow exactly these steps. Again, we are then not recognizing diversity. We're not recognizing human difference and variability. And we're not preparing ourselves for the changes that are happening in our environment. It's the opposite of what I see as inclusive design. There is a huge difference between some of the popular conceptions of what is inclusive design or what people see as the same as inclusive design and our notion of Inclusive design being designing for difference, variability, complexity, designing with the people that have the greatest difficulty are currently excluded from the designs. And in fact, frequently designed by those individuals, supporting those individuals in designing and in arriving at the systems that um, will best serve them which, of course, that's another piece of inclusive design. We're not experts, we're not professionals in that sense, that we know better, that we know what people need, that we understand exactly what will work and what will not work for you. It's a process of enabling people to understand their own diversity and difference and become experts in their own requirements and to Constantly recognize that the expertise is with lived experience.
0: And I think that's the part that ends up being missing in a lot of these, because that idea of reaching out to somebody whose lived experiences you don't know, you don't understand, who may be using technology in a completely different way from you, is an expression of you not knowing, right? You're unaware, you're ignorant of this difference. And that tends to be a cause for people to, to close up. And I've found so many times that when you pull out of people, either not doing these processes, it's that they don't want to feel ignorant about the the situation. They're uncomfortable about it. And so they might even raise process points rather than acknowledge that they have things to learn about the thing that they spend their entire lives doing. And I think what happens with design thinking is that it papers over that that mm-hmm. the designer is still is the actor in this scenario, the doer, and then the the users are the done too, right? They're the the receivers of this thing that you bestow upon them. And I, I blame empathy training for that. Yeah. The idea of, of marketing and commoditizing the concept of, of empathy, cognitive empathy. In a a clinical term, I think it is a beneficial thing, but it's also in the eye of the beholder. And the idea that you can think for or on behalf of somebody without actually participating with them ends up being a, a blocker to this. And it ends up creating a lot of the, Liz Jackson has termed them disability dongles. This idea of the tool that adapts a person to the environment and not the other way around. And I, I kind of wonder, is there any use for that concept of, of empathy in this, or do we have to throw that away and go on to some to some other framing in order for this to start from a fairer, more equitable place?
1: Yeah, and in addition to the empathy exercises, the, the notion of persona as well, and even edge persona. And simulation,
0: makes, another thing yeah, that comes up a lot. It,
1: it's such hubris to think that we can ever know exactly what somebody else is feeling and how they're going to react. And anything that we do to persuade ourselves, that's the case, I think is really dangerous. We need to come at this with humility with a recognition that the only person that has expertise about their own experiences, the person that's experiencing it. Even if there were huge similarities, I have the same disability or I come from the same place, I speak the same language, it's not going to be the same. You were asking, is there something is is there value in empathy? And yes, of course there is. There's value in recognizing the common needs, the common or the commonality, the humanness within each of us. But we need to do that with humility. And with the recognition that we don't know, and what we feel, what we know, what we expect is not the same thing.
0: The reading that is clicking with me is the, the idea of agonist design—that you're building something as people are basically chipping away at it, like trying to do the opposite, particularly in like political situations.
1: Yeah, but this speaks to empathy. So, if you're going to design a country, a regime, then uh, you should design it not knowing whether you're going to be. Popper, or the the least powerful, or the most powerful, but I, I think there is definitely a value in empathy, as long as that empathy comes with humility, and if we can use empathy and stories, the real stories of people who are facing challenges at the moment to unseat people from their presumptions and assumptions, whatever we can do to extend somebody's imagination of what the possibilities are for life and possibilities of people's existence is good. The minute people think that actually gives them expertise or knowledge about what somebody else is feeling, what somebody else is experiencing is dangerous to a large extent.
0: Yeah, there's also this idea of experiencing one aspect of, of exclusion is transferable. <laughs> that right. There's a piece of it. This is something that over my career, just pieces of the rest of my life come into me. And I understand that I experienced exclusion in the educational environment that was related to my ADHD, that I was always kicked out of classes. I was put in detention. I was always in in, in academic trouble in one sense or another. That was actually my first experience in you know, accessibility spaces, which was why don't you adapt to us? Why don't yeah. we change the way that you that you do things in order to fit the situation? <laughs> But then I come into accessibility and think that it was just out of the goodness of my heart. That was how it resonated with me. It took a while to put the pieces together of I have experienced what it's like to not be a participant in this ecosystem. But that only goes so far. There are lots of great self-advocates who can push for inclusion only for themselves, but at the expense of of other people. And I think that there's this other level of advocacy where it's like, OK, you understand what this is because you've been in a situation that doesn't that doesn't make you feel like you're participating equitably. But you use that with the skills that you have to help to amplify others that are in the same situation.
1: Yeah. We're at a point at the moment within the evolution of the field where there is cachet in having lived experience, which is lovely. It's lovely that we've come to this point that we recognize that our own lived experience is something of value and lived experience of having gone through the challenges and struggles that exclusion has created. But I, I don't want people to think that's the only reason or the value within inclusive design, or that that's the only motivation. Because you have experience of struggle, of exclusion, of systems that don't work. I truly believe that many of the crises that we have at the moment, and many of the ways in which our society seems to have gone sideways, and is quickly accelerating towards some sort of major extinction or disaster has to do with not attending to difference, diversity, not understanding complexity, and that moving forward with the the type of in, in inversion or disruption or upending that inclusive design proposes is something that will benefit everybody it's not just about a group of individuals who have been wronged where things need to be righted much deeper than that it is about how are we as a society going to live survive and in wronging in the wrong that we've done and in the practices of the wrongs lies everybody's demise to some extent. It is a complex adaptive system by virtue of doing these wrongs, of excluding people, about not valuing our difference in the xenophobia, in the disparities that are there, in the linear thinking, the monocausality, all of those things that are not part of inclusive design, but that inclusive design is trying to unseat There also lie many of the crises and the troubles that we have got ourselves into. All
0: right, I'm going to pause here. We're going to get into the troubles and then probably in the last 15, 20 minutes, we're going to solve them all. Uh, But we'll take a pause (laughs) right here and then we'll just jump right into it. On the next episode of NX. Graphics were something that I received. They were not something that I requested or chose. They were curated for me
1: by textbook publishers and other cited folks. There was never a direct path from my curiosity to an image being under my fingers.
0: A conversation with Chancy Fleet. <sighs> okay, we're back and we want to get into this part of the discussion as you were talking about the forms of exclusion and the history that we work with, that's an important aspect of this. And to start from that, I think that it's entirely fair to say that in terms of design as a practice, that the history of it is shaped just even in the last century. It's shaped enormously by upper class white men in North America and Europe, uh, those have been the traditional defaults and we can add enabled heterosexual cisgender to the mix. A part of the, the idea of why inclusive design, and this is one of the, the things that, that I think is evolving more recently. Inclusive design is a how, it's a technique, it's a methodology, but you need a why. You need a reason to be doing that. And, and that to me is equity of establishing a place where everybody has has a stake. Everybody has contributed equally to the outcome of that. And going back to the adaptation of your program into the, the IDRC, that you had moved from the idea of we moved from disability into in the definition, all forms of human difference. And that kind of opens up multiple sets of exclusion to, to discuss. And there are, including some of the people that we're talking with in this series, experts from other lived experiences that also have needs that are not themselves expressed in, in the products and thinking about LGBTQ community, things like dead naming people in software applications, of gender identity, of the representation by race and gender in the workplace, in leadership, in imagery that we create, that this idea of inclusive design is not just limited to to disability. And I want to talk about how does that expand? How do design practitioners start to understand where they came from, where the things that they learned are and what the biases are that are already entrenched in the work that they've created, the artifacts that they use on a regular basis so that they can start disassembling them.
1: Yeah, there's so much that I can say about that. The premise that I've always, throughout my career, that has grounded me that I am most persuaded of is that diversity is our greatest asset we're not using diversity i mean we i, I don't know why we missed it in terms of the human realm we e- economists despite capitalism think about diversification of markets biologists and most people that think about animals at all or, or the ecosystem think about diversification. We fight against extinction. Every child knows which animals are threatened with extinction. And yet exactly those same people are the people who are in essence promoting what can be called epistemicide or the, the killing of ways of knowing. We're winnowing down uh, the diversity within our society, within our systems. So the premise is that d- diversity is our greatest asset and inclusion is our biggest challenge. And that's what has been driving me for the longest time. And diversity, d- d- I hate actually the categories or boundaries of that diversity, because it is so entangled and there are so many different forms. And it's that lovely mix of things as opposed to, I belong in this box here. And by belonging in the box, these are the assumptions, presumptions you can make about me. When I think about what is diversity or what's human difference, I think it's this rich interplay of so many different facets of everybody's identity. And it's that interplay that is something that is, I think, will reap the greatest rewards in terms of this asset. Disability too. What is disability? That the the difficulty, but also the beauty of it is that there is really no real definition. People keep trying to capture it, but it's just difference. It's sufficient difference from the norm that things aren't designed for you. And it can be seen as a strength and it can be seen as a problem. I, I think in terms of disability as something that is a problem, uh, there are far greater things than we that are a problem than the things that we classify as within the formal classification of disability if there are such things. So the fact that disability is not really defined, that we cannot create boundaries to it, that we can't box it in, I think is one of the reasons why it is frequently what I go to when I talk about the need for inclusion and the benefits of inclusion, because the other, I guess, justice-seeking groups have very well-defined here's who belongs here here's who's in the club here's who's not in the club right or here is the distinction between someone that has this identity and somebody that doesn't but that can't be there in terms of disability unless it's self-identification as having a disability. But the problems and the exclusions that come with it are many people experiences who don't identify and the benefits extend well beyond the group. Yes, the entrenched thinking that we have that the white male cisgender dilemma that is who has authored this mess that we're currently in and who, for whatever reason, continues to be in power and still has the the ability to make the decisions and influence the decisions. What is so infuriating about that is that it's associated with innovation, it's associated with progress, it's associated with All of the the sort of powerful influences, still. But in fact, those same mindsets that are promoted by that, the people in power are so ancient and so old and so damaging. We're still under the influence of the Industrial Revolution, the idea of the average person and the sacredness of being within a particular norm, the notion of survival of the fittest, the uh, Dewey decimal system with categorization, the 80-20 rule with the quick wins and the quick profit that needs to be there. And even the the things that are supposed to be these inclusion sprints or designs for good are all about competing and survival of the fittest still.
0: Yeah. Since you were talking about the, the Dewey Decimal System, the thing that just, just blew my mind about this was the discussion of categorization of LGBTQ content yeah. In the context of a system that was designed by a virulent homophobe, I, like, you don't expect that there are going to be a lot of really progressive voices in the early 20th century. But this was a disorder to, to Dewey and the work that it took just for it to be in different sections from a medical disorder of either homosexuality or transgender issues. Even the fiction content there had to be reclassified. And so the Dewey Decimal System, I think, is a great example of codifying the way things are to one specific perspective, and in this case, an American perspective, which is then how all of this information is
1: organized. Yeah. Dewey was homophobic. He was racist. He was sexist. He was everything. that, And his particular classification finds its way into all these taxonomies and ontologies of metadata, of coding still in the digital world, in the library world. And he, of course, created these hierarchies. What is... To, at the top and what is trivial and what is important and what isn't and assigned a codified place for everything. That also shows the history or the lifespan, the evolution of these complex adaptive systems and our unconsciousness of where does some of this come from. It is a a great example of why we need diverse perspectives. And especially now, one of the things that's so distressing is when I talk about Edge perspectives, people think that I'm talking about extremism or that I'm talking about the individuals that are have extremist right wing or left wing views, and that's not what I'm talking about. And I, I think the one myth that I keep trying to get rid of is the notion that inclusion of edge perspectives is going to cause a greater extremism, when in fact, uh, what we found again and again is if you make room for a, a diversity of perspectives, then you actually achieve a much greater equilibrium because you don't have these two polarities which push against each other and become more and more extreme. You can look at this from the perspective of physics. If you have a pendulum that is pushed in two directions, it's going to keep swinging higher and higher in both directions. But if you add other forces, the other perspectives, then it will find a, an equilibrium. I'm, I'm going to take you an attention because I'm quite distressed with some of the practices that we have at the moment in terms of inclusion and equity. And I don't think that a lot of what is happening right now is, or it's not getting us where we want to go necessarily. And that includes the polarization that is happening within the equity versus non-equity or equity versus whatever is not for equity movement. There is this sacredness in certain rituals and performative examples of doing equity or doing inclusion. And that is quite distressing. I think the, the minute that there is a stasis or there is something that cannot be questioned. The minute we abandon self-critique, then we are going to ossify and we are going to become static and that will be the end. The minute we say something is certified as accessible or inclusive or ethical then and that we have had success in arriving at something. That's our end. That's our demise. So, um,
0: As soon as we create the the checklist for doing inclusive design, or we take down one well-defined structure and replace it with an identical, well-defined structure where there's no variation or variability to the way that you do things.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about how not to do that. What are the, the the things that if you had to to give a class on inclusive design in five minutes, <laughs> what, what are the things that you would want to, to do? This is great. I, I've known you for long enough. <laughs> I know that you can do it, <laughs> but I want to get into the like how what are the things that people are doing wrong that that you see? And how would you reframe the, the mistakes that you see people making over your career?
1: Okay, so you've just triggered one of my allergies. And one of the things I think we're doing wrong, but not, not as a critique. I, I think yeah. one of the things that's distressing is the shallowness, the need for speed, the you have to do something within 140 characters, you need to tell us everything of great depth within a certain period of time. You have great. 10 minutes to do your TED talk, etc. whatever. So yes. the distressing thing about that is that means that we cannot take people far from where they currently are. It's going to take somebody a while to understand and to see the, the steps that they have to move from their current position. But that isn't to say that you can't say something fairly pr- profound within a short period of time, that you can give people the foundations of what is needed. But for them to really understand them and for it not not to be just simply these words, it takes more time and there's a a succession. You have to take quite a few steps away from where you are. So (laughs) if I had to um, compress (laughs) or get at some of the fundamental things without actually talking a little bit more about what that actually means, not your assumed understanding of a particular word. Because, of course, words are also such a slippery, strange thing. What a word means to you is not what a word means to me, is not what a word means to somebody else. What is fundamental to inclusive design? I think... One of the first things, OK, one an image I can use to illustrate inclusive design, I'll, I'll use two things. I'll talk about that human starburst. And I'll talk about what we call the virtuous tornado. So the reason for the hu- human starburst is not because of process. Basically, the, the, how I came up with this notion of a human starburst is because of 40 years of gathering data on the diversity of needs that people have. And the only way to actually represent that, because, of course, we all want data. We're obsessed with data at the moment and data analytics and um, data is the only form of evidence that seems to be accepted. And we equate evidence with truth. And that's the only truth that's there. Trying to come up with something that is much more true to diversity. I plot it in a three-dimensional multivariate scatter plot which looks like a human starburst and the the truth that i gained from that is that there is this huge space and most of us occupy only 20% of it in the middle. And the people that actually have some understanding and knowledge and experience of the rest of the space are the people that we're currently excluding in our design, excluding in our assertions of knowledge and truth. And if we want to to innovate, if we want to be creative, if we want to find the weak signals and the things that we've missed out on. And that we've forgotten about or have excluded, then it's the the individuals that are out at that and the experience and the needs that are out there. How do we do that? The way that we do that is through what I call the virtuous tornado, which is recognizing that we're never going to get it perfectly. And in fact, it's the imperfect, the impermanent and incomplete that are the things that we should value, that have the potential. And it's that idea of potential that we need to keep seeking. So the virtuous tornado starts with what we know at the moment as being the individuals, the experiences and the individuals that are currently excluded and have the greatest difficulty. And Attempting to work with those individuals to create a design that is inclusive of them. And that includes creating the process that they feel is inclusive of them. And then going through the full cycle and iterating at, at the end of this cycle where there has been an opportunity to try out the design, to evaluate, to determine is this addressing these challenges, asking again who then now is missing and, and what are the challenges that are that the system that we've created has not addressed and going further out and further out at each iteration. So it's a process without end and it's creating a system or a structure that expands and that includes more and more so inclusive design is not about stasis it's not about completion it's not about reaching a, a success it isn't about winning in essence it is actually quite counter to the fundamental way in which we make decisions that we plan that we solve problems, that we think about education, that we think about work, that we think about value and valuation, it contests all of that. And so it's a massive culture change. And at any point where we think we have landed on a dogma or something that's sacred, or something that you know is a performance of inclusive design then that's the wrong turn that isn't inclusive design
0: so i want to ask a tactical question here because this is something that that i'm asked a lot (laughs) let's say you have a researcher that says okay this is what i want to do i really care about the space what do I do next? How do I reach out? Who do I reach out to? What changes do I need to make to the way that I do research Uh, or anything like that with a designer or an engineer, anybody that's involved in the process? Because they start out and they built a head of steam and then you get to the, the practical pieces of this and then it gets substantially harder and that's where people start to... Yeah hedge their bets. What's the next step for for people once they have decided that they want to to undertake this work?
1: So it it completely depends on where they're starting. And I think they need to start where they are. Say it's a researcher, a data researcher, say they're into quantitative statistics. The advice I would give there is let's look at that and query that and question why you're doing this this way? And who is it that you're excluding with that? And who is it that can't use whatever you're doing or that your assertions are not uh, actually addressing? Do you proclaim this finding or conclusion um, based upon this statistical significance? Or do you look at Well, look at the spread here and look at the variability. Do you remove the outliers, etc.? Almost any discipline, any field, any place where somebody is at, there is a reason for or a process that they can use to say, wait, wait. What is it that I'm doing that's excluding? What is it that I'm doing that is causing someone to be harmed by what I'm doing and excluded from what I'm doing? There are so many issues with this idea of engineering. The denial actually within engineering is that the world is changing, that it's predictable. Engineers assume a predictability that Yes, the world is complicated and we can work out the complication that the risk mitigation or planning process, that there's some way in which we can predict things when in fact it isn't a linear process. It's the black swans that get us. In terms of engineering, there's the hubris that you can plan for anything that's going to come. And that, of course, causes you to create these boundaries and linear processes which are going to exclude. So... That's the conversation with the engineer. For the clinician or the medical professional, it's how can you, in fact, have expertise um, in these things? How can you tell people what's good for them when you don't know? Uh, the the full extent of their life when you're seeing somebody and diagnosing them, when you have medicalized these things and fit them into prognostic categories. So for every person that intends to get into inclusive design, and I think inclusive design needs that range of disciplines, that range of perspectives, there's a different set of questions to ask.
0: Great. So I have one question that is all ranging. You can go in any direction that you choose with it, but who do you think is worth following in this space? Who do you think is doing good work? Who do you think is meeting the bar that you would set for practicing inclusive design, or has a critical view of inclusive design that you think is important? Anything that people can grab onto to further their own understanding?
1: That's a hard question, because I think there's a growing group of people. And so my sense is to that is always changing. I don't like identifying just one person, but there are these nuggets that arise and people that come up with new things, because I think inclusive design is a field that needs to be continuously refreshed. I I think back, though, on... People that I think we haven't listened to, people like Donella Meadows and the primer in systems thinking, or Ursula Franklin, who was talking about the the real world of technology and rethinking technology as a mindset, this notion of acting like earthworms, the importance of earthworms preparing the ground, I I think what we need to do is to continuously search for people who are adding fresh perspectives, who are expanding the field, just like that virtuous tornado, who can give us some more information that is... uh, true to our human difference, true to the idea that we all have value, true to an understanding of complexity. Sorry that I can name off a whole slew of people that are currently there, but I I think the point that I want to make is that everybody has the potential to add to this field. And what it's about is adding those diverse views, to those diverse perspectives to the whole.
0: I'm going to, rather than, than narrow you down to people, I think fields of study, because it, it's, it's a confluence of a bunch of different fields. There, there's research, there's design, there's things like feminist STS. There are all of the, these other influences that, that, that come in and where academically would one branch out on an inclusive design.
1: I like to ask the same question. Who are we missing? What are we missing? So what are the fields or the areas of study that we have not paid adequate attention to. So the other ways of knowing, I think the pushing out of indigeneity and indigenous ways of knowing is really promising. The ideas of other groups or other non-Western views of history, of culture, of what has value, the perspectives that we've denigrated are, I I think there's a lot to learn there. There's a field which I I think is really interesting. And it's this notion of wisdom. We've been caught up in smart and intelligence and those sorts of things. But can we balance that with the ideas of wisdom? And what is wisdom? What we need to reach is an equilibrium, a, a balance. And that comes about by diverse perspectives. And we can't go too far in any one direction. There isn't an answer per se. And the, the reason or the way that we understand that and realize that is in bringing in that diversity of fields of perspectives of ideas of experiences.
0: All right. I think that is a, a great place to stop. I want to thank you for doing this again. and. We'll have show notes and we can put links to some of the things that you were talking about, like the Virtuous Tornado. And yeah, I'm really grateful that that we had this chance to talk.
1: Thank you. It's been a pleasure.
0: That's our show. Show notes and transcripts for all NX episodes are available at NX.show. That's I-N-E-X.show. All episodes are released under Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 International License.